welcome everybody to another edition of the Art Business Podcast. Uh, my name is David Bellingham. I'm Programme Director of the MA Art Business at Sotheby's Institute of Art in London. My students are going off today to Venice for the Architectural Biennale. I can't be with them for... Um, I've got some immune problems this week, so I'm very jealous of them. But um, it's very, very hot here in London, so it kind of almost feels like being in Venice. Um, and my guest today is Mithra Stevens. Uh, Mithra is an alumna of Sotheby's Institute of Art London, but she didn't take uh, the Art Business Master's course. Instead, she took the MA in Art Logistics uh, programme, uh, which I had quite a lot to do with in terms of sort of setting it up. We, we ran some electives to test the water and the interest, and there was an awful lot of interest. Um, I think we might come back to that later, Mithra, what that included and involved. But anyway, you're well, You're very welcome, Mithra. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really good to welcome. And I think you're in London as well, and it's very, very hot and steamy here, I think. So uh, hence the drinking of water at frequent intervals. Um, so I, I'm going to start with the usual questions about, um, you know, do you have a favourite urban location? I spend quite a bit of time in Florence, and I think a lot of people have kind of fallen in love with that city for a reason. And I definitely find myself drawn there. So I think that's probably, yeah, my favourite. And can can you say a little bit more about when you first went to Florence and what strikes you as being, you know, why do you like it? Why do you like returning there? And what's the art world like there? An obvious question, but... Yeah, no, definitely a good one. Um, I went there first. So what took me there was Advancing Women Artists Foundation, which we'll probably go into later, but who I found out through my time in Malta, found out about this organisation uh, that restore works by women, and then they re-exhibit them uh, in their original context. Works that have previously been, you know, under the name of a man or taken for credit by a man, um, pre like predominantly in the Renaissance period. So that whole context of what brought me to to Florence in the first place is something that I'm very passionate about. And then I worked with them on a few exhibitions for women artists in Florence. And what's, what sort of spaces did you use for, their, for, for exhibiting their work? Yeah, really interesting question because the first exhibition was actually in a very old villa just outside of Florence um, that was previously owned by a writer called um, Vernon Lee, an English writer. And yep. she had lots of contemporary friends and uh, Virginia Woolf had visited the um, villa. So it had a really rich, beautiful history. And then the second one was at the Cloisters of Santa Maria Novella. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> that, they're interesting spots because you do see, and, 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 and many people think this is a new thing to show um, I, oh no, you're talking sometimes about Renaissance art, aren't you? It's, it's more, is it more Renaissance art or was it kind of synchronic? Was it artists in the 20th century and today or was it mainly Renaissance? It was both. So the first one in the villa was Lea Coliva, mm -hmm. who was a, um, yeah, 20th century. And yeah. then second was Swole Plotinanelli, who was an incredible nun from the <laughs> Renaissance period who created, she actually painted the only last supper painted by a woman. And it's seven meters by two meters. So it's absolutely enormous. And in the top corner, she wrote, pray for the paintress and signed her name. Amazing. So there's evidence, there's plenty of evidence that it was her that made that yeah. painting. Yeah, yeah. She, she yeah. used to have all her, her nunnery working on the painting. So just a really yeah. incredible kind of feminist message. And that's what really drew me to work with that organization in that location. So for me, the, the context and my work there is very significant. 
Yeah, and it's lovely, I think, to take to, for this to be happening outside of the standard museum space. I much person, I've said this before, I don't really like museums. You know, I prefer to see our, an altarpiece in Florence where it was meant to be in a church or cathedral. I, I, you know, I'd rather see a Picasso in 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 in, in the right environment in the south of France or Paris and so on. And uh, obviously museums are really useful, but I, I think it's lovely the way the Italians, I think in particular, have this tradition of using these cloisters, which are airy places in summer. They're very pleasant to walk around. And you can put the art, of course, under the cloisters on the walls, so there's not a problem with UV light uh, and the rain. Yeah, it's a really nice space. Yeah, the site-specific nature is really... I'm, I've always been drawn to that. I really, really... I love... Uh, yeah, I really love indigenous rock art in Australia. So originally I actually wanted to study um, wall restoration. That was my original path I thought that I would go down and then I kind of got stuck <laughs> in my hometown over COVID and I'd already started working as a picture framer. I was doing little bits of restoration there as well. Um, and then I kind of I kind of pivoted towards more <laughs> logistics and, and general logistics and then... When you say, when you say your hometown... Oh yeah. So I'm from a small town just near Byron Bay in Australia. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So I was just checking out where where you got stuck because a lot of people have stories about where they where they actually ended up finding themselves yeah. at COVID. But but did you find in the end what did you how did you respond to that being you know there? Did you did you find it made you creative in in different kinds of ways or did you find it actually generally quite depressing experience no i think i was very lucky yeah where we are it's very uh touristy so there's lots of tourists all year round mm -hmm. but when covid hit all the tourists couldn't come anymore and yeah. so we kind of just had this beautiful i mean it's it's stunning it's a very um beautiful natural landscape the beaches the creeks the rivers it's it's really famous for that um yeah. and, and no one could come so i was just kind of in this lovely landscape <laughs> practically no one around. And um, because it was obviously people were stuck at home, um, the picture framing and the art supplies just went absolutely crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so I worked really closely with like a team of five others and we were just um, working tirelessly trying to get people's pictures out to them and doing all the logistics around that. Um, yeah. Because everyone was redecorating. It was a really time, yeah. Yeah, never, it's never occurred to me that that would lead to, I know people were buying art because they were focusing more on their own house interiors and gardens as well of course for outside yeah. sculpture never really thought about oh they're going to be going to picture framers as well so that's brilliant and bar and bay um it was mentioned in an earlier podcast about two or three ago with the with the artist jack davis who works mainly down in cornwall now and he he had spent he'd actually gone out and exhibited sculpture they have like some kind of sculpture uh, exhibition actually on the beach you know external you know, this was some years ago now, but I remember now he was saying what an amazing place it was. And he stayed in the middle of nowhere. You know, he wasn't on the bay and he, and he loved the experience. But just coming back to what you said about Aboriginal art, when you say about restoring walls, do you mean Aboriginal art on walls or do you mean generally getting into kind of like even street art today? You know, any kind of like frescoes on a wall in a cathedral or, you know, what sort of wall restoration did you mean? Did yeah, definitely mm. all general kind of wall restoration. Yeah. I, I'm really interested in site-specific art. Mm. And I think, yeah, nothing, more, nothing is more site-specific than when you're actually using the landscape to, uh, you know, translate your artworks. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was interested in the whole kind of thing. I still love that dearly, but for me, I, I don't think that's the path I would go down now. Is Yeah, well, that's interesting because my, 
my PhD research on site was in Pompeii. Um, and so I, I actually had to learn, I, you know, I found myself just learning an awful lot about the walls and the frescoes on top of them. Um, I don't want to go, I don't want to bore the listeners with this, but you you get, I, I remember I'd, occasionally I'd actually um, do some little mini tours for people um, from Britain, like little culture tours to, you know, bring in some income while I was a student. And I remember the best people to take on those tours were people who actually worked with things like plumbing. And I remember there was this guy who did plastering on walls and he was showing me, pointing out these things that I'd never seen. So he was showing me all the different layers where they'd replastered and the, sometimes we counted up to six layers of repainting where fashions change. It's like we do wallpaper and so on. But it was very interesting what he was saying about the the materials and the uh, the lime plaster used and so on of, of those walls. So I, that was quite interesting. Yeah. I love um, that. That's fascinating. And it's <laughs> like tangible and practical as well, you yeah. know, like how it changed with the styles, but it was still had to be livable. Uh, I oh. love that. I love that. Um, yeah. And of course they had a, they had an incredibly violent earthquake about 17 years before the Vesuvius, the volcano erupted, and you can still see the signs of that. They were still restoring these walls 17 years later, which is fascinating. You know, they, they, they'd restored a lot, but they hadn't got around to quite a lot of those walls. So there's a lot of material there that is still giving us information, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So so um, if I asked you about a rural environment that you love, would that be like the Australian outback with Aboriginal art or would it be somewhere else? It would probably be, yeah, like the rainforest, to be honest. <laughs> Mm. I love, yeah. It, we live in a very tropical area where I'm from, so that kind of, you know, bush hinterland um, areas where I grew up. And that's, yeah, I think that's my favourite environment to kind of live in. Beautiful. And, of course, that's very topical today with what we hear about rainforests uh, under threat and, and, and so on. So that's that, that's that's wonderful. Do you, I've, all, I've never been... The only rainforest I've been to is that there are actually some rainforests in Cornwall, for example, because of the tropical, it's on the Gulf Stream, like little patches that they say are actually technically rainforests. So obviously you don't get the sounds of the kind of wildlife and the types of exotic exotic birds that you might get in Australia. But it must be absolutely wonderful just the just close your eyes and listen in rainforests in Australia. Yeah, it is. But I guess the perk of having it over here is you don't have all the dangerous animals with it. So that sounds quite relaxing, to be honest. <laughs> I was talking, funnily enough, I was talking to your program director, Gareth Fletcher, who's, as you know, has gone back to Melbourne. And um, he, he, by the way, for the listeners, he was the program director. He's a, he's actually a former alumnus of MA Art Business of mine, and he used to work with us. And then he he was made director of the MA Art Logistics. And um, he was he was talking about the spiders and that he's the one that has to get them out the bath. And he's the only one that can identify the poisonous ones. And, that you know, that that is something I don't mind spiders, but it kind of puts a lot of people off, perhaps, when you hear about that. <laughs> it definitely keeps a few people away. <laughs> you learn to live with it; it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you? I don't know if you're into architecture. As I say, my students are now off to the art, the, the Biennale of Architecture this year in Venice. But do you? Are there any buildings you can think of that really inspire you in any way? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this, so. I did a brief stint down in Tasmania. So I lived there for six months and I was teaching um, ceramics and pottery, which was, mm. um, yeah, really cool. But so they have this incredible contemporary art uh, museum there called Mona, Museum of Old and New Art. And it's it houses this incredible collection by David Walsh. It's his collection. And 
it's a building that's been built to kind of integrate into this cliff. So it's it's absolutely amazing if anyone gets the opportunity. I mean, it's quite a um, isolated location down in Tasmania, but well, it's absolutely amazing. It's in Hobart, and um, yeah, I found that just an incredible. If you have time to look it up, please do. So they've actually they've actually excavated into the cliff to, for the gallery. Exactly, and so some and it's very um, modern. So you've got kind of big like whole blank walls of like limestone inside and then you have all this contemporary art kind of installed on the Sounds outside. beautiful. So they haven't even tried to cover up the, the natural rock. Oh, so it's it's a really, really fascinating building and to have the art collection in there that's very eccentric to say the least. <laughs> is it is it publicly funded or is it like a foundation and a private So it's institute. private, it's a private mm. collection. <clears throat> Yeah. But I do believe there are some public. Yeah. And do you know who, can you remember, you, I, I'm terrible on architects' names, but was it some famous architect that worked on this or just a local, you know, just a local architect, it were. It sounds as though it's an amazing building. We we don't talk about architects' names in the, just Herzog and Demure and the obvious ones, but in the way that we talk about artists, it's very unfair. Oh, definitely, yeah. Mm. I mean, I don't know a lot about architecture. I wish I knew more, mm. to be honest. But there are some buildings you walk in or um, amazing structures you walk in and, and they really resonate with you like an artwork. And mm -hmm. that's kind of how I feel about Mona. It's almost like an artwork in itself. I just looked it up. So it's uh, Nonda Patsalidis. Sounds possibly Greek or... Yeah, you know. Greek-Australian. Yep. And pardon um, my ignorance to any listeners who's saying, how come you don't know this person? <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry, but <laughs> now I do. and I, I, I'll Well, no, I'm talking about myself as well. Oh. Um, what a great name as well, obviously, Mona, Mona Lisa. It's quite funny. Yeah. Quite um, but buildings built into rock, I'm thinking also the recent extensions of Tate's and Ives in Cornwall. Um, that they they it's built in the side of like rock on overlooking Surf Bay uh in, in St. Ives, the art colony. And um, we we take our students there every year. Um and they 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 had to build into the rock to make an extension because there was nowhere else to go. Um and so that's an amazing space as well that they use there. Um but it's not obvious in the way that it sounds as though Mona is. So, um, so are you into music, Mithra? I mean, do you, do you, is this, you know, does music play any part in your life at all? Yeah, it does. So actually my parents started a Steiner school. So oh. <laughs> I went to that, through Waldorf education my whole life. Um, so w where you're kind of made to play instruments as part of your, your schooling. Yes. So I played violin for a long time. I was not very good. Um, <laughs> but then I, I took up piano. So I used to play classical piano for about 13 years. And I absolutely love like folk music. So I love like Joni Mitchell, Maggie Rogers, Leon. Um, yeah. yeah. So mainly American folk music. Yeah, mainly American. Yeah. So you really grew up with classical music. Yeah. And yeah. art, so that was very, yeah. very much part of my. Um, and if anyone ever asks you that embarrassing question when there's a piano in a room and says, "Could you play something for us, Mithra?" A, do you? And B, what do you tend? You know, which composer do you really? Which pieces by a classical composer would you say is a favourite to play? Oh, I tend to avoid that. I don't really <laughs> like the spotlight. <laughs> okay, when you're on your when you're on your own. <laughs> God, it's been. Or, so or you know, crazy. is it? French mute, French, you know, Debussy. Uh, I got really into um, like Joe Hisashi and the Studio Ghibli uh, soundtracks. Oh, right. yeah. So I, I play all of those songs and I absolutely love Great. them. I, yeah, the atmosphere they create, oh, mm. you know, it, it's designed for cinematography. So it's it's really wonderful. Beautiful. Oh, that's really that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And um, and then art 
a question I ask most of the guests is, do you have a memory of when you first became aware of this thing called art? And I guess I, do, I mean, I mean, visual arts as opposed to music and so on. <laughs> yeah. I think going to the Steiner School, I was really exposed at a very young age. Um, and art has always been very much part of my education. So there's, uh, yeah, your whole pretty much primary school years are predominantly focused around art and making. Mm -hmm. So that's something that came uh, quite naturally to me, which I'm, I'm lucky, fortunate enough. Mm -hmm. And then that's something that I developed throughout my high school years. And then I went on to study art history. So I can't remember a specific time. I just feel like it's always been there. Mm -hmm. do you remember do you remember a first visit for example to an art exhibition an art gallery where where would that have been yeah so we used to go once a year we would drive up to brisbane which was the closest city to us it's a two-hour mm -hmm. drive away and mm -hmm. we'd go to the uh contemporary art exhibition up there or to various art exhibitions my mom's a very a much a lover of art so mm -hmm. we'd always make that kind of pilgrimage once a year and i i remember those trips very yeah clearly wonderful wonderful um and um Thinking about some of your early work, um, I know, you know, because obviously it's obvious to the listeners that you've done logistics and you've talked about restoration projects, picture framing, you're very, you, you come across as a very kind of hands-on person rather than a theory person. Um, you know, we all know that art, did you do a BA in art history? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at Melbourne or was that yeah. the... Yeah. University of Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. And we all know that that's very, tends to be quite theory-based, um, not so interested in the kind of practical, you know, the practical aspects of, of art. So maybe you've already talked about that, but we might come back to that later about how what made you interested in, in, in that practical hands-on experience. Um, I mean, you were talking about school making art, maybe that's something to do with it. But I was going to ask you to tell us, I know that some of your early work uh, was in I think 2017. You 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 went to Malta to the art uh, biennial. Uh, I suppose we can call it Biennale because it's Italian, the Italian language. Um, and, and and I don't know whether listeners, how many listeners have been to Malta. I've only been once, but um, you went to the Medina Cathedral. Um, do you want to talk about that building and um, what work you were doing in there in terms of the relationship to the Biennale? Yeah, of course. So actually, I went to Malta on a university exchange, the University of Malta, uh, six months. And part of that work, they kind of offered, is anyone interested in in helping on the Biennale? And I, of course, was like, yes, please. <laughs> I would love that. So it was in the ancient city of Amdina, which is kind of in the yeah. center of Malta. It's this incredible kind of fortress that still remains um, quite similar to how it originally was. It's quite um, unique in that way. It was at the Cathedral Museum, which is next to the cathedral. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting. It comes back to that question, I'm not sure if I've spoken about it yet, but of exhibiting contemporary works mm -hmm. in religious spaces. Mm -hmm. um, that in itself is obviously, it's controversial. I think that, you know, with our increasingly secular age, a lot of people, you know, have dropped, they've either dropped the religion that they've been grown up in um maybe they i don't know if they some kind of philosophy has taken over but it's, it's a question that i don't think we talk enough about because actually there's a lot of contemporary artists out there some of which will surprise people i'm thinking of damien hurst who's done a lot of work in religious buildings you know i remember a church by the old ancient roman london wall opposite deutsche bank um he he was commissioned to actually make a 
a working altarpiece and a, and a screen with his butterflies, which represent souls, of course, in some Christian theology. Um, and, um, you know, he's there's other things he's done. And I, I, know, I think Bill Viola recently, he's he's been doing quite a lot of video installations in St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, so so maybe you could talk more about about is there any kind of tension when you put a work of contemporary art particularly one which isn't obviously related to say christian theology uh, in in a in a christian religious setting and i guess the other question i was going to say is is the is medina cathedral still consecrated is it still functioning as a religious building or is it a ruin i can't remember it's still functioning yeah um i think because it was the museum the cathedral museum Oh, it was the museum at the cathedral. Yeah, well, it's a yeah. building just next to it, but it still it has a lot of the original kind of paintings and artifacts shown. Yes. Uh, so it's there's a few levels. The the top levels are kind of all of those original um, pieces, and yeah. then so the the Biennale itself was held down in the crypts, which was I incredible. So I kind of I helped with the install of all of those with the artists. There's a could be there and <laughs> it was really fascinating there was a mix there was like video art there was um pottery and different ceramics and there was one artwork that was an australian artist actually who i, I can't remember his name but he created these little knitted figurines that almost looked like pokemon characters <laughs> and they were all crucified <laughs> oh goodness and so there was a there was a response to the semi kind of sacred christian tradition yeah which is really interesting as well because malta is a, a catholic country mm -hmm. and it's still very much part of daily life yes um, yeah people go to the church once a week once mm -hmm. a week and the church community is very strong there and it's within the government you know it's still um very very um, prevalent so i thought that was really interesting to actually that that was even okay and allowed mm -hmm. but <laughs> um maybe it was because it was down in the crypts that people did i guess what you're pointing to is that there is some contemporary art that riffs on like judeo-christian ideas i'm thinking of the famous piss christ yeah. <laughs> you know which meant which some people which you think people would find offensive actually i think it's only very extreme christians that find that offensive but obviously this there's a whole world out there isn't it of different religions who 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 appear to get more offended than others so it's just a, i find it really fascinating that when contemporary artists are not the kind of ones that are deliberately commissioned for the vatican who are you know making deliberate sort of works of art for the contemporary collections of the vatican which are amazing by the way um but i find it actually more interesting when you get someone who isn't necessarily uh you know a, a full-blown christian putting work into a gallery someone like damien hurst who who's agnostic uh but very very interesting in the in an, uh, the possibility of an afterlife um yeah, no, it's, it's <laughs> so interesting i i actually i love that kind of context and seeing that um complete kind of yeah almost contradiction. So that that was fascinating, actually, mm. working on that. I really got, I, that, that was a really hands-on experience for me where I was helping, you know, install the- and, and this was installation that you were working on? Installation, but then it, it progressed through. So it was a few months of tours and um, being yes. there, helping kind of um, maintain the exhibition, you know, yeah. sweeping and... all of the dust because it's an old <laughs> building. You look at the day-to-day -day and it, it's like, <laughs> The, the actual um, management of the exhibition and making sure the artworks are okay. It's a very kind of moist environment. And ah, um, oh, right. So you're kind of also doing your logistics sort of um, curating thing. 
yeah, as well totally. at the same time. I don't know if you've been, I'm just trying to remember if it still works, but I remember the, the crypt I remember in London, um, you might know this, it's not that far from the Institute actually, it's up it's the the new St Pancras Church that's based on the Erechtheum Temple from classical Athens. It's it's just in front of Euston Station on that horrible road, and it's got Caryatids. You know, it was one of the first Greek revival um, buildings in London that copied the Caryatids from the Erechtheum Temple from the classical Acropolis that most people haven't heard of. You know, they think of the Parthenon. Um, and of course, we have a, Elgin brought back a Caryatid to London, which is why the early 19th century Greek revival architects imitated them on that building. Um, but they their crypts they use for contemporary art shows, and it's the most beautiful space because it's they haven't it hasn't been done up at all. So it has this feeling of kind of almost, you know, there's there's old tombs down there. It's got this kind of feeling of death, but it, not in a nasty way. And it's yeah. it sounds as though your space is quite similar to that. And I people need to look it up. I don't know whether since COVID it's sort of started operating again, but very much recommend to people in London, St Pancras, New Church, um, in Houston uh, for the for the for the contemporary art uh, gallery there, and of course that again is a crypt beneath a working church. But I think the church felt that it was really good to 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 support the arts and contemporary artists down. Um, you know, I, I don't remember there ever being a charge. I think that they just saw them so, like they off they have music concerts where they allow music students from the Royal Academy of Music just down the road. Uh, I think it's a philanthropic gesture to young emerging artists of all wow. kinds you know um but anyway I, I don't know whether that's still going but crypts are good spaces as well and and, and then um you, you've already referred to the advancing women artists foundation or awa yeah. um that that you worked on in santa maria novella um in, in the, the famous renaissance church in, in Firenze in florence but um you were involved in in the restoration project i believe of, of the swore plautilla nelly uh, who who painted the only Last Supper by a woman? I think you've already spoken about that. But do you want to say a little bit more about what that work involved? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I I first I went over. So I found out about them from the University of Malta. From I took this course called Gender Issues in Art, okay. and I had this incredible professor called Charlene Vela, and she uh, went through the history of art and recontextualized it through artworks done by women, which is essentially, uh, you know, like Katie Hessel's new book, um, Story of Brilliant. Art. Great book. <laughs> Brilliant. Love that book. A mini course kind of that did all, all of that and outlined everything. Yeah. Um, and then she told me about Advancing Women Artists Foundation. She said, you should you know, reach out there in Florence. Um, so that's exactly what I did. And I went over to meet with one of the directors to kind of hear more about what they were doing and it was in that time that I actually got to go and see the artwork being restored by the famous restorer Rosella Lowry who mm -hmm. it was absolutely incredible going into her studio and seeing this painting like rolled out and being restored and yeah I think I mean all of those all of these experiences now I'm thinking about them they all kind of led towards art logistics you know like I'm seeing I love that I love seeing the actual practical um, different steps of looking after a work and, and seeing it how it evolves in its life. Um, and can I can I ask um, the, the the work by um, the sister Nelly? Was it a canvas? Was it originally a canvas or yeah? Because you said about rolling it out, and so that that had originally been on the wall of um, Santa Maria Novella. It had, yeah, and it had been. I believe it had been. It was where they ate. Yes, that's what I was going to say. It's it's site specific, like Leonardo's. Yeah. Uh, so exactly. it's actually in a refectory. 
yes, originally. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which was really interesting. But then it was rolled up and it was put in some attic somewhere and then it was damaged in the floods of Florence. Yeah. So it was in very poor condition. If you look it up, you can see the before and after. Um, yes. did an incredible job restoring it. Um, and have they have they redisplayed it? Yes, they have. You can go and see it. In here. in the sacristy or have they put it somewhere different? I think they've got a copy in the sacristy. Okay. Like a real like a full life copy. Yes. And then the original is in um the cloister. In the cloister. Yeah. Interesting. Inside, so it's not outside, yeah. it's just inside. Yeah. Okay. As an art historian, Mithra, um sorry to interrupt. As an art historian, um can you <laughs> it's a strange question, but it's a question that people often ask. Can you tell, is there anything that makes you realise this is by a woman, even if you didn't have the signature on it? Or is there a kind of um, a, a woman's approach? I don't want to use the word feminist because it might be anachronistic, but anachronistic, but is there anything about it that is different from Leonardo's work? And in Leonardo's work, of course, we've got that figure that some people have, that we think is probably meant to be, I think, John the Evangelist, but some people think it might be Magdalene. There's been some controversy over one of the figures because they look quite gender neutral, if I can put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a hard one. Once you know kind of more of the signs and tells, like the tablecloth has these really specific folds in them. And mm -hmm. they were because that's how the nuns used to fold their tablecloths. Oh, wow. So there's lots of like symbols and signs that, um, yeah, would allude to the fact that it was done in a nunnery. But if you didn't know that, I would say no. There's nothing yeah. that contextualize yeah. it. I mean, apart from her big signature and pray for the paintress. So if you speak Italian, yes, you're <laughs> going to know that's by a woman. But if you don't look at that, um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful piece. And I don't think there's anything particularly feminine about it, to be honest. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So just an, in an interesting question that people often ask. So coming on to logistics, um, I guess the question would be, what made you elect to study MA Art Logistics at Southern Institute of Art in London, 2021 to 22, because you recently graduated, of course. Yes, I did. Um, so in, yeah, 2018, 2019, I was, I was kind of looking at what I wanted to do next. And that's when I thought maybe war restoration would be for me. And I was looking at the Courtauld courses, which were mm -hmm. three years long, very intense, um, incredible course, I'm sure. And then I volunteered at a, a charity auction in Byron Bay with um, Robert Bleakley, who was the founder of Sotheby's Australia back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of was speaking to him about, you know, not knowing where I wanted to go next and wanting to work in the art world. But I, I, I had this idea, I wanted to go over to London, to Europe, and kind of be more, you know, in the centre of the art world where things are happening in a faster pace than Australia. There's, yeah, I think there's a, a little bit more going on. In, in Australia has an incredible art scene, but it is quite isolated. Uh, and then he kind of told me about Sotheby's Institute and that it existed. And <laughs> I looked it up and the MA of Art Logistics came up and I was reading the description and I was like, oh, that sounds perfect. <laughs> One, I love the practical side of things. I, I love seeing how things um, get from A to B and how you exhibit different works based on materiality and all the different um, kind of behind the scenes that go into moving art and looking after art. And so I applied for the course, I got in, and then COVID hit, so mm. I started to defer my... Good idea with a course like that, which involves a lot of visits exactly. to art logistics companies and so on. Yeah. Which I'm so happy I did, because then yeah. when I actually did end up doing it, we did all of those visits. Uh, it was yeah. very and, and part of your motive, of course, as you said, was to actually move physically to 
London. Okay, so that mm. was it. So when I, I saw that I could continue with the course, but it would be predominantly online. Yeah, that so must have been difficult. Exactly. I was like, and, and also if I was going to do the time difference, it would be really difficult. I'd be up all night. <laughs> Yeah, Matches, that's you know. true. Yeah, yeah. I had to because I had to speak with Gareth the other day. It was like late afternoon, and it was like eight a.m. here. So yeah. I even I even missed the first one because I'm not used to looking at my calendar until I've like washed up in the morning. You know? Yeah, no, it's a, it's definitely the time difference is a bit of an issue. Yeah. Work. Um. So yeah, I'm I'm really I'm glad I I did make that decision. And I I think that you know I think it's no secret that. The program has really tragically had to close down because of the relatively small number of students that wanted to do that. And what I would say to listeners is that I, when I first got the idea to, I thought that an MA in art logistics would work really well because um, we have a lot of students in art business. And I thought what we could do with actually, you know, reducing the numbers somewhat on art business, art business is a deliberately broad program. And I, I was meeting people in the art logistics world who, who'd graduated everywhere I went. And I did some research. I went out to New York and so on. I spoke to people in logistics, you know, alumni in logistics there. And I kept saying to them, what do you think about a would a master's in this subject? Because they said, they kept saying definitely because people just don't understand, you know, they just don't know anything about this and no one really teaches it. Um, Even in public sector, you know, it's part of a museology degree. And they were saying in the commercial art world in particular, and for registrars in the public sector and private sector, it's such an important thing. So we really thought that this would take off and what tended to happen because I've spoken to people is people said oh I said well why didn't you do logistics you know it's more practical and that's what you're going into oh I wanted the broader picture so it was a kind of shame really that that happened um and now of course we've relaunched to make up for that we've relaunched the elective which any of our master students can take and and what's happened the numbers are back up to 30 to 40 again so it's a strange case of this is really popular but people don't want to do it they see it as too niche for a master's degree um yeah. but what, what did you learn kind of the kind of things that you learned from it mithra and i was thinking also about i think your first work was then with Rockbots. So maybe you could talk about Rockbots and then then maybe say, I mean, did you did you visit, I, I, you probably had a guest lecture from Rockbots or visited the company with Gareth. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah no, it's all very true, everything you said. And, and it's great that it's still being offered as a, um elective. Um, we learned a lot over the course of a year. <laughs> um, I was made aware of Rockbox kind of very early on, I think I saw one of the um, alumna from logistics the previous year post about them. And I kind of looked up the company and I was like, this looks really cool. Um, I want to be kind of working in that space. By that time, we'd had a few lectures as well about sustainability um, and kind of the future of art logistics. And it really kind of, it hit home to me, you know, it is about the longevity and um, looking f- further forward and also looking after artworks in the most like sustainable way we possibly can. So I was really interested in um, companies in that space. So I kind of was looking them up and I was really aware of them. And then in January 2022, they posted a job for like a part-time customer service. And I was like, great, that looks great. I'll see what I can do. I'll see if they're open to potentially hiring me part-time whilst I do my master's. Um and that's what I ended up doing. So I've been with them now for over, yeah, over a year. Uh, and for the listeners, can you tell us what Rockbox is? Yeah, of course. Sorry. <laughs> Quite. R- and it's R-O-K-B-O-X. 
Yeah, great, exactly. a great, great, great name. I always great think. Name. <laughs> um, so it's reusable art shipping crates. Yep. You can use time and time again. There's different uh, fixing systems, so you don't have to just have one box for one artwork. You can fit multiple in, you can reuse it, um, change it in different ways. Uh, it's a very, very yeah, complex and, and intelligent design. So it's it's really interesting working with it. And so I now I work now as a, an account manager. So I'm working with institutions, individuals, galleries, museums, etc., um, about transitioning to using this reusable product, which is a massive change in behavior, which is challenging at times, but it's also um, it, it's kind of an inevitable thing that's going to happen. And it's really really cool working for them because they're obviously a startup they've been around about seven years yep. and seeing how um yeah habits are changing and, and it's really it's really good to see and do you want to tell us Smithra, about why you know what do people traditionally do when they're moving art around the country and the world yes so usually what will happen is an artwork will have a wooden box made for it and that will be packed out with foam. Mm -hmm. um, close that up, they'll ship it off to where it needs to be, and then the artwork will be taken out. And usually if it's a gallery or somewhere that doesn't have the space to store that box, they'll just destroy it. It's often not recycled because they don't have uh, recycling facilities that large, mm -hmm. so it's just chucked and skipped. And then if that painting has to travel again, they'll refabricate a new work out, a new crate, sorry, out of wood, and then send it wherever it needs to go next. Uh, so it's an incredibly wasteful practice. Um, <laughs> So highly, highly unsustainable. Um, and also, of course, there's plastic materials that then can can really damage our wildlife. I'm thinking of bubble wrap in particular, which I know is very difficult to recycle. But art, art worlds, you know, I got a painting the other day and it's still in a, a small paint, oil painting and it's still in a jiffy bag with bubble wrap. It's very hard yeah. to recycle. Honestly, it's it's hard also because of, you know, bubble wrap's amazing. <laughs> it really does yeah. protect your art. Yeah. It's incredibly cheap. So. Yeah. To kind of pivot from that towards something when there might not be um, too many alternative um, <clears throat> materials. Um, although, you know, there's so many emerging sustainable like packaging alternatives, um, yeah. spongy bags, I'm sure. Everybody yeah, I was going to, yeah, the listeners, uh, there's an earlier episode, if you look back with um, another, an alumna of mine, actually, Elsa Ackerson, mm -hmm. who developed this thing, spongy bags. Um, Mithra, I think you know Elsa. Do you want to tell the audience, remind the audience what she did and, and, and yeah. how successful it's been? So it's, it's an essential, a soft packing bag with mm -hmm. a strap for artworks. Um, and it's made out of recycled materials, which is incredible. Yeah. And she actually became one of the 30 under 30 Forbes people for, for entrepreneurial ideas, business ideas. Um, and of course, she's an art, she's a, she's an artist. She's a working artist. So <laughs> the, the two of you, I, I think, know one another quite well. So yes, that's <laughs> an inspiration. I um, interviewed her for my dissertation about sustainability. Oh, interesting. And yeah, that's yes, interesting. I learned a lot about her business and her model and how mm. she developed it. And yeah, yeah, she's she's amazing. She's a force of nature, and I'm. And what I was going to say before we move on is thinking about Rockbox again. You did say that people don't, you know, like a private collector, they're not going to want to store this stuff, and 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 like a dealer, you know, or they haven't got anywhere to store. But how does Rockbox work? I mean, surely you don't you still have to store it? So <laughs> exciting. This is an interesting yeah, um, time to talk about this because, mm -hmm. because we actually are just launching a rental program 
Yeah. So there's going to be major, well, there are rock boxes and major art hubs globally that you yes. can pick up and rent for a month or longer, whatever you need. And yes. then you drop it off in where the closest art hub to you. Yeah, and then there's a warehouse that has, and, and the problem then is, you know what I'm going to ask, is art comes in all shapes and sizes. So would you custom, if, if a client sort of wants a new one for like a difficult sculptural object or something, would you custom make that and then just keep it for future use? So we are just 2D at the moment. But yeah. The oh, right. We're working on 3D. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. of our um, models are, are modular. So they, they're the same kind of width and you can mm-hmm. have them bigger and bigger. So we're, that's, we have a range of sizes. Um, it reminds me a little bit. You talked about working with framing. Um, yes. and, and when you go into a, there's a great place in Paris Saint Germain. I can't remember the name of it in Paris that you might know, which which deals in frames. So they do they they will custom make frames, um, and they will make repro antique frames. But they also have a lot of old frames that have been taken for paintings. And the problem then, as you know, is finding the right frame to fit the old painting or the new painting, and so on. So that's yeah. it. Sounds like a similar thing with Rockbots. Yeah, it kind of is. It's really interesting because I've worked obviously a lot with um yeah different kinds of frames and and materials, mm-hmm. and obviously I kind of know what they can stand um with withhold. So when I'm kind of advising clients on how to pack, obviously if it's an ornate frame, you have to have it comes with a whole other series of issues and yeah. um, pretty packaging that come into that. Um, which is it's really interesting how all your jobs kind of come together. Yeah, <laughs> what you're doing now, I feel like it's um yeah. And of course, of course, a lot of I mean, famously, of course, we we now we now use like old master frames, gilt, baroque frames, rococo frames for um for to give extra value and classicism to Monet's, even Picasso's, and so on. And I think even some contemporary artists use it ironically, the old master frame. So it's a it's a very interesting example of kind of almost like the cross. A, a synchronic idea of, of of creating extra cultural value um, by putting like an old master frame to say actually this is a really great contemporary painting and it's in that's why it's in an old master frame so that also comes into that choice yeah, definitely sometimes the frame is like the artwork itself but honestly some of the work that goes into them are just extraordinary absolutely and I remember Sotheby's I don't think it does it anymore um, I don't know about the other auction house but they in the early millennium, when I started working for Sotheby's Institute, they would have regular um, frame sales because what would happen is the someone would bring in like an old master painting in, and the the specialist would say the painting's worth nothing, we'll never sell it, but the frame is worth a lot. So they would give them the painting back and roll it up, and they'd say we can sell the frame for you. Um, and that's I don't know what's happened, but I don't think they do those anymore, which is a shame. Yeah, I'm going to look that up because it's- yeah. I love frames, and and also it's the re- that's they must be doing something, and maybe I'm wrong. Uh, 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 you know, apologies to listeners if you discover they're still doing these, but it used to be the catalogues were so useful because you'd learn such a lot. Because as you know, Mithra, there's not much written about frames and how to date them. And one of the questions I'm always asked when I take with people around the National Gallery or equivalent is, "Oh, David, can you tell us about the frame? Is the original frame?" And you know, even the specialists there, when they're asked, often don't know that. It's it's an embarrassing question and one that we should know more about. <laughs> and then anyway, yeah. Now recently, Sotheby's Institute, I think it's two years ago, they they uh, thinking about Elsa, they created this thing called the Enterprise Studio Gavel, as in the hammer that we use in the auction house competition, um, for entrepreneurial ideas from our students. 
um, both in New York and London. I think it's also open to alumni, but you entered it recently. Can you tell us first about your entry? Yeah, of course. So <laughs> I did my master's dissertation on sustainability and carbon footprint calculators in the art world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did a practice based. So I created a business plan alongside. Um, so for about a year, I researched, looked into um, all of this, this area. And I kind of, it, it, and I, a business idea evolved from what I identified as a gap in the market um, for one comprehensive tool that can help you identify your carbon footprint. So sorry, calculate your carbon footprint, identify all of your carbon intensive areas and then connect you to a green supply chain from emerging and existing sustainable options that can help you address your, your carbon footprint in the areas that matter most to you. And so I kind of, I'd, I'd worked on this idea a lot <laughs> and I'd actually pitched the previous year, I applied for the enterprise studios and I didn't get in. I had this idea for a sustainability vetting system. Um, but as, yeah, which was actually, it was a really interesting idea, but it wasn't really ready. And the, panelists, mm. the judges kind of identified that and were like, you're not ready, which I'm so grateful for. So then I spent a whole year working, studying, interviewing, researching, identifying gaps in the market. And I came up with this comprehensive business plan that could be really, really useful. Um, and yeah. And, and as I understand it, because I watched the I watched live online, the um, presentations by yourself and some very strong competitors, as I understand it, what people have to do at the moment um is is very clunky they fill in a form and they don't really get much feedback i think the idea of your system will it will it will it it, it, it will actually immediately feed you feedback information that you need because you have as i understand it you have to like if you're a member of say a regulatory body um like the climate coalition the climate yeah um you 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 they expect you to actually submit your carbon footprint in your from your gallery in a year and it's very difficult to at the moment whereas your your idea is to create is it like an app like an app but yeah. also um it'll be just a program online yeah uh, the idea is exactly because usually you have to calculate all the different aspects of your carbon it's actually a lot of the materials out there are not comprehensive so you're only yes. calculating certain aspects of your emissions and yeah. then you're logging those and you get this data and you're kind of like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with this? You can hire an analyst to go through it for you and help you work it out. You can do things, but yeah. people are given the tangible, you know, like tools to actually act and make changes like now, <laughs> which I think yeah. that is what's necessary to bring the carbon footprint down in line with, um, yeah, COP26. So they Brilliant. want to reduce 50% of emissions by 2030, which is a very ambitious goal if people don't even know where to start. And so. Mithra, do you, when are you likely to, I don't know what the history of this is and when you might launch it or if it's already been launched as a kind of, um, you know, trial version. So I'm working with a development team now mm -hmm. to kind of develop the first iteration of the project. Um, it should be available within six months. Okay. And do you have a brand name for it? Yes. So Sustainably Managed Art Logistics. Smart Logistics. It's, it's do, do you have an acronym for that? Smart Logistics. 
Oh, it's Smart Logistics. Okay. Yes, that's so that. Good. Have you patented that name already? No. So I'm doing sustainably managed <laughs> art logistics. Is no, I'm just thinking of people listening that this gets out into the <laughs> public world and yeah. There are there are other companies called Smart Logistics. So I'm going for the longer. Oh yeah, yeah. I know. I understand. I am yeah. so SMSL. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. And um, anyway, I don't know whether all the listeners are aware of this. Probably not. But well, you won. <laughs> Congratulations. You won the prize. The first Thank prize. You. Um, was it was that a surprise winning? It wasn't a surprise because of um, my competitors, my peers. Mm-hmm. There was some incredible um, business ideas, and I was really um, blown away by a lot of them. So mm-hmm. the fact that mine was chosen was was really um, humbling. I was yeah. I was very shocked. But it, at the same time, I did a lot of work on this business idea, and I did a whole dissertation yeah. on it. So I felt like it, it was very it was ready. It's ready to be. My understanding is that you came across as very confident and concise, and it sounded to me like this this is an idea that invests because for the listeners, um you you actually get quite a lot of seed, a reasonable amount of seed money if you win this competition, and that you know to help you sort of uh, push the business uh, in its first stages. So um yeah, I think that it was obviously as you as you said, it was a good thing that you were turned down not being quite ready. I know a lot of people this year weren't quite ready either. Listeners, um, certainly my students listen will know there's a lot of assignments and it's very hard to do these what we call extracurricular things on top of your core work. So maybe taking a year out and then submitting is is a good tip to future people who enter the competition. Um, so, so, so Mithra, what are your plans for the future other than um, you're still working with Rockbots and you're developing this um, sustainable managed uh, smart logistics app and website uh, do you have any other plans for the future oh that's keeping me pretty busy at the moment <laughs> yeah i'm sure <laughs> and your and your uh, rockbots is can you remind me where it's based in london i've never been to rockbots uh we're in vauxhall you're welcome to come oh, in and have so visit. because i used to take the student the elective students i used to t- we went to crown logistics <laughs> which is also in that's in stockwell actually rather than vauxhall that's Very right close by and yeah crown quite close yeah as well so you might have yeah i remember i think i remember david preston that that i think he even showed us one at or someone showed us one at some point maybe it was in a lecture he showed the idea he certainly talked about it but they use them yeah they're they're around you'll see them about hopefully more more prevalent prevalently now but yeah and and maybe to finish with it might be quite interesting for the listeners um like in somewhere like london the other big logistics art logistics company in london in you know, maybe you could name some of them. Just to give the listeners an idea that there's not just one company, this is a big issue, this is a big industry. Oh yeah, it's it's massive. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, some of the key shippers, you have, yeah, yeah Gander and White, Crozier. Constantine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Crown, Queens, mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot. And yeah. it's really interesting, uh, the GCC, the Gallery Climate Coalition, mm-hmm. they have a list of active members all of whom are taking practical steps towards sustainability. You also have Julie's Bicycle, who are doing amazing things sure. in this cultural sustainability sector. Uh, they're working with a lot of um, public sector institutions as well um, yes. to kind of transition to, towards more green practices, because that is something that everyone is really having to take into consideration now um, as we move forward, which was great. I think we focused a lot on that throughout our degree. Yeah, on, on MA Art Business, we did. Um, one of my colleagues in particular, Marina Matsumova, 
she was very she's very interested in sustainability issues and um we this year we've had this kind of partnership with um freeze 91 the freeze vip group and um part of that was putting on occasional lectures that would interest both our students and their members who are collectors and dealers and and so on um and and the last one was actually a sustainability one and if it had been earlier because Elsa I think was on the panel there I would have definitely invited you but I wasn't so aware of that you know <laughs> I guess we're all in these sort of different silos still in the institute and don't always know what's going on I probably should have reached out to Gareth and said you know but there you go um but I guess what I'm saying is that as an institute we we take this seriously in fact I think we're 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 actually planning to become part of the gallery climate coalition whereby when i do trips abroad with my students we're going to have to watch how many flights we take and prefer the railway and we've already started that in fact venice yeah. of course is very difficult to get to by train so the biennale so actually my students are actually flying out there uh, but when we go to places like maastricht in the southern netherlands we now take the train yeah. um, and that's what we're kind of trying to do now <laughs> yeah it's great i mean it's just uh you know little things that they can make a big impact as you um everything everything you know everyone says why should i bother i see all these people in the street with their four by fours you know why do i bother but it's very important i think you'll agree mithra that we all play our part in this definitely yeah <laughs> well mithra thank you very much this has been a really amazing fascinating um you know podcast on on a subject i haven't we haven't spoken about before the idea of there's a world called art logistics out there um so i'd just like to thank you on behalf of the listeners for sharing your enthusiasm and knowledge um you know with us today so um enjoy the rest of your day thanks david it was yeah my pleasure it's so nice to to talk to you about it very pleased bye